Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. You're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. I'm Di Cousins and today I'm interviewing Judith Rodriguez and we're going to talk about poetry that has had an influence on the way poetry is written and it's poetry that um, either came just before the 20th century or was written in the 20th century. Uh, We thought about the 21st century but we thought it's too early to tell which poetry has been influential in the 21st century. Um, Now, Judith Rodriguez um, has been on the Spoken Word program before and she is one of Australia's most loved poets. She's also taught in the University of West Indies in Jamaica, the College of the University of St Mary's, which is in London, La Trobe University, Deakin University and the University of Madras. Um, Judith's been teaching at the Council of Adult Education, which is also called the CAE, in Melbourne intermittently for nearly 50 years. Uh, And she's a member of the Melbourne Shakespeare Society and PEN. PEN is the organisation that supports writers in prison. So welcome, Judith. Oh, thank you, Di, for all that. Um, and uh, let's just reflect a moment on, on teaching at the Council for Adult Education. Um, that's a different kind of teaching to university teaching, isn't it? Yes, and I like it very much because we're not teaching to a qualification. The students that gather there really want to bathe themselves in poetry and to write it, and that's very welcome to me. Yes, so in in the CAE course, um, you expose people to different kinds of poetry. And I remember you once saying that you observed that people had a very limited experience of different kinds of poetry. Yes, it's interesting to me. People have different primary school experiences of it. Uh, but looking back at the readers that we were given in school in the 40s, um, there's a lot more poetry there than I expected. And um, I think also in the Queensland school I went to and at the University of Queensland, uh, Australian poetry was taught. Um, Various academics mistrust Australian poetry. I've heard a couple say, oh, Australian poetry doesn't need, doesn't deserve to be taught. But, of course, this is ridiculous. We we are Australian. Uh, Some of our influences come from England and America, But we are different from them, and you can hear us in the voices of our poets. So, yes, uh, I feel that a lot of people today haven't a great experience of poetry. A kid from Cary told me that they did no poetry at all. Uh, Quite surprising. Yes, I think it's been thrown out in favour of things like media studies and, um, you know, computer software or something. Well, those things are needed, except that they seem practically born with a computer in their hands, so it may not be needed for so many hours as all that. Yeah, that's right. But not everybody has parents who read to them every night, which is a very sad thing. And another thing, I'm not aware that we really have Australian nursery rhymes. We have various good books of verse for children, 
But uh, I don't know how many people grow up with these things ringing in their ears. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, so I, I was thinking about how much poetry changed um, from the 18th, 19th centuries and then in the 20th century poetry became something quite different in many ways, like losing many of the structured forms and rhymes and, and so on and, and becoming quite, uh, you know, a, taking on its modern form. So it seemed to me that that was an interesting thing to try to understand, how how we got to where we are, but going back to where we were. Well, it's very interesting. I, I see Walt Whitman as at the base of so much development into free verse. There were poets who wrote unrhymed poetry before. After all, every literate poet knew that Homer got on without rhyme. Uh, and uh, they saw that noble poetry could be written without it. But it wasn't very usual between, say, the 12th, the, the, about the 14th up to the 19th centuries. The metrics was very much in favour. People liked the idea of a, a little grid of stresses, since English works by stress, and also of the beauty of rhyme. And... Uh, uh, People's ingenuity with those two systems more or less restricted them as, or fed into them as poets because people don't get restricted by the rules of a form. They use them. Anyway, I see Whitman as being absolutely seminal. He was working from the 1850s up to the 1890 or so, and his practice was free verse. And he wrote it in long lines, very spontaneous. And that, that has really influenced all American poets since, and a lot of others. I'm going to read you a little bit from Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking. Um, it starts off, Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking, Out of the Mockingbird's Throat, The Musical Shuttle, Out of the Nine-Month Midnight, Over the Sterile Sands and the Fields Beyond, and so on. And the bit... I thought might interest you. Once Pormenoc, when the lilac scent was in the air and the fifth month grass was growing, up this seashore in some briars, two feathered guests from Alabama, two together, and their nest, and four light green eggs spotted with brown, and every day the he-bird to and fro near his hand, and every day the she-bird crouched on her nest, silent with bright eyes. And every day I, a curious boy, never too close, never disturbing them, cautiously peering, absorbing, translating. Shine, 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 pour down your warmth, great sun, while we bask, we two together, two together. Winds blow south or winds blow north, day come white or night come black, home or rivers and mountains from home, Singing all time, minding no time, while we two keep together, till of a sudden, may be killed unknown to her mate. One forenoon the she-bird crouched not on the nest, nor returned that afternoon, nor the next, nor ever appeared again. And he goes on about the male birds drooping as a consequence. Well, you can see that this is... is, is Wonderful, eloquent stuff. It's strong enough to uphold the poetic mood without rhyme and without particular reference to a tight grid of stress 
and non-stressed syllables. He's particularly good when he talks about the multitudes of people that make up the American democracy. English poets felt that he was too declamatory. They called his The Great American Yop. And he does go on and on. The pure contralto sings in the organ loft. The carpenter dresses his plank. The tongue of his foreplane whistles its wild ascending lisp. The married and unmarried children ride home to their Thanksgiving dinner. The pilot seizes the kingpin. He heaves down with a strong arm. The mate stands braced in the whale boat. Lounce and harpoon are ready. The duck shooter walks by silent and cautious stretches. The deacons are ordained with crossed hands at the altar. The spinning girl retreats and advances to the hum of the big wheel. The farmer stops by the bars as he walks on a first-day loaf and looks at the oats and rye. The lunatic is carried at last to the asylum, a confirmed case. He will never sleep any more as he did in the cot in his mother's bedroom. And so on. And as you see from those last lines about the lunatic, Whitman wasn't afraid of any subject. He wasn't afraid of talking about slaves. He wasn't afraid of talking about prostitutes uh, and naming them clearly. He wasn't afraid of being gay and making his love of young men, in particular, quite clear in his poetry. He wrote a, an absolutely great elegy to President Abraham Lincoln, whom he worshipped for his captaincy of the United States in the Civil War against slavery. Uh, so he was really a, a very upfront public poet and an enormous example uh, to people with constricted ideas of the literary mission. Uh, the United States is very lucky to have had him. Uh, there were other verse, there were other exciting writers in the middle of the nineteenth century. One of them was an Englishman, Robert Browning. And what I wanted to call attention to was that he heard human voices. He starts one of his great poems to the Italian about the Italian artist Andrea del Sarto with these lines which appear to be in the middle of a conversation. But do not let us quarrel any more. No, my Lucretia, bear with me for once. Sit down and all shall happen as you wish. Uh, this was new. Uh, Wordsworth couldn't do that. Um, as far as I know, Coleridge couldn't. There's a delightful short poem of Browning's that is called Two in the Campagna. Two people are riding together. I wonder, do you feel today as I have felt since, hand in hand, we sat down on the grass to stray in spirit better through the land this morn of Rome and May? For me... I touched a thought I know has tantalised me many times. Like turns of thread the spiders throw, mocking across our path, for rhymes to catch at and let go. Help me to hold it, and on he goes. This is the voice of a speaking person addressing a known person. Uh, it's familiar, and yet it doesn't lose the dignity of, uh, in his case, um, Rhyme and form. These are written in stanzas. So they're two great poets who taught something to the 20th century that the 20th century followed up. Every poet develops free verse in a different way. 
but free verse is something that a poet should be able to attempt. The voices of people are an enormous resource, um, and poets today generally try to handle that. Yes. Um, I think we might just go to a track. Uh, this is from Sapphire, uh, the Australian guitar quartet, the CD Nostalgica. beauty. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple colour as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal, chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow and plough, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth, whose beauty is past change. Praise him. So that was a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Yes. Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, a priest, um, and... I think in his latter years, a troubled soul. He was nonetheless, as you can hear from that poem, one who walked with nature. I think we'd call him an ecologist today. I, I think he'd be very much in tune with uh, saving the earth. His other most popular poem, Binzy Poplars, makes this clear. My aspens, dear, whose airy cages quelled, quelled or quenched in leaves the leaping sun, all felled, felled, are all felled, of a fresh and following folded rank, not spared, not one, that dandled a sandal shadow that swam or sank on meadow and river and wind-wandering, weed-winding bank. Oh, if we but knew what we'd do when we delve or hew, hack and rack the growing green, since country is so tender to touch, her being so slender, that like this sleek and seeing ball, but a prick will make no eye at all, 
where we, even when we mean to mend her, we end her when we hew or delve. Aftercomers cannot guess the beauty been. Ten or twelve, only ten or twelve strokes of havoc. Unsell the sweetest special scene. Rural scene, a rural scene. Sweet, especial, rural scene. Now, he wasn't afraid of using of using words that came from the local dialect. He wasn't afraid of using old words. Hugh and Delve are not everyday parlance at all. And uh, you find that even more in some of his other poems. These are probably the two clearest. But he's a, a wonderful poet for his use of language. As you can see, he's still using rhyme, but it doesn't seem to hold him back from being very spontaneous. He's a much-loved poet, and he gained a great deal from living in Wales, where he absorbed some of the very live Welsh tradition of bardic poetry. So I think he's somebody who has been subtly very influential on us. I can't think of a poet who wouldn't admire him for his well, ingenuity and, and feeling. He talks of the, just seeing the wind hover, a bird in the sky. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dolphin, dapple-drawn-drawn falcon, in his riding on the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and so on. And that usage on his ride on of the rolling level underneath him, steady, air, that huge, complex adjective. The English language will do it, but Hopkins had to show us it could. Uh, so he's a wonderful poet to study. Yes, so today we're um, looking at uh, poets that have been influential in poetry in the 20th century. Um, this is the Spoken Word program, and we're talking to Judith Rodriguez. Uh, so who do we have next? Well... I find that next in my thought uh, come T.S. Eliot and uh, uh, and D.H. Lawrence because of their very, very different use of free verse. Uh, both uh, Eliot's an American, working in London, but very much an American in lots of ways. Lawrence is an Englishman and for a lot of his life an expatriate and a free mind. Um, and... Uh, Eliot has something very interesting to teach us about free verse and making it different. Of course, every student today loves the wasteland. They come into classes saying, Ah, oh, the wasteland, that's my life. T.S. Eliot is talking for me. Well, I don't think so. The First World War, and the wasteland appeared in 1922, uh, was a devastating experience for appreciators of civilization. But T.S. Eliot came to blank verse, say, and he didn't choose to do it the way Shakespeare did it. Uh, generally, it comes down to something that's free, but more often than not has three beats sort of per line. A heap of broken images where the sun beats. That's how he's feeling it. And the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, that's probably four. And the dry stone, no sound of water, only 
You glide over syllables more easily. You're talking in a modern voice, not a poet declaiming off a podium, but somebody thinking, thinking in today's language. It's shown very clearly when he, in a game of chess, the second part of the wasteland, he starts with a line from Shakespeare, which is five beats. It's in a good old iambic pentameter. The chair she sat in like a burnished throne. But then he goes on, glowed on the marble, where the glass, held up by standards wrought with fruited vines, from which a golden cupid on peeped out, another hid his eyes behind his wing, and so on, reflecting light upon the table. These are lines that don't come down as iambic pentameter. They're speaking a bit faster, and, as I say, often getting down to three beats as a regular kind of thing. Now, D.H. Lawrence, quite different. Wow, what a guy. Um, he's very famous for a poem called Snake. Um, and I'm going to ask Di to read part of that. Okay, thank you. Snake. A snake came to my water trough on a hot, hot day and I in pyjamas for the heat to drink there. In the deep, strange-scented shade of the great dark carob tree, I came down the steps with my pitcher, and must wait, must stand and wait, for there he was at the trough before me. He reached down from a fissure in the earth wall in the gloom and trailed his yellow-brown slackness, soft-bellied down, over the edge of the stone trough, and rested his throat upon the stone bottom. And where the water had dripped from the tap in a small clearness, he sipped with his straight mouth, softly drank through his straight gums into his slack long body, silently. Someone was before me at my water trough, and I, like a second comer, waiting, he lifted his head from his drinking as cattle do, and looked at me vaguely as drinking cattle do, and flickered his two-forked tongue from his lips and mused a moment, and stooped and drank a little more, being earth-brown, earth-golden from the burning bowels of the earth on the day of Sicilian July with Etna smoking. The voice of my education said to me, He must be killed. For in Sicily the black, black snakes are innocent, the gold are venomous. And voices in me said, If you were a man, you would take a stick and break him now and finish him off. But must I confess how I liked him, how glad I was he had come like a guest in quiet to drink at my water trough and depart peaceful, pacified and thankless into the burning bowels of this earth.
And that was from the CD Sapphire, um, Nostalgica, uh, a, a short uh, Romanian uh, folk dance. Um, so you're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. I'm Di Cousins and I'm talking to Judith Rodriguez about 20th century poetry. So D.H. Lawrence uh, and the snake, did he write that in Sicily? He did. He wandered a good bit. He came to Australia, of course, and wrote a novel, which uh, Stephen Carroll, speaking last night at the presentation of the shortlist for the Miles Franklin Prize, uh, said might, according to the terms of Miles Franklin's will, uh, might well have won that prize had the prize been established at that date. It's about phases of Australian life. And uh, the prize does not stipulate that the writer be an Australian. Um, And uh, he found Australia very interesting, I think. And uh, he eventually settled in the south of the United States at a sort of, um, I can't remember the name, but desert location with his wife, Frida, uh, and others uh, devoted to modern art. Um, Yes, I think he died there. He died, of course, rather young. Uh, in 1929, uh, of tuberculosis. Um, But uh, he's wonderfully spontaneous, and he's very irreverent. And the next two poems I'm going to read are examples of the irreverence of D.H. Lawrence and the reverence of T.S. Eliot, both, of course, using uh, free verse. Occasionally there's something like a rhyme, but rhyming tum tiddlyum with geranium is um, rather refreshing, don't you think? All right, that's from Red Geranium and Godly Mignonette by D.H. Lawrence. Imagine that any mind ever thought a red geranium, as if the redness of a red geranium could be anything but a sensual experience, and as if sensual experience could take place before there were any senses. We know that even God could not imagine the redness of a red geranium, nor the smell of mignonette, when geraniums were not nor mignonette either. And even when they were, even God would have to have a nose to smell at the mignonette. You can't imagine the Holy Ghost sniffing at cherry pie heliotrope or the Most High during the coal age cudgelling his mighty brains, even if he had any brains, straining his mighty mind to think among the moss and mud of lizards and mastodons to think out in the abstract when all was twilight green and muddy. Now there shall be mm, tum-tiddly-um and tum-tiddly-um and hey presto, scarlet geranium. We know it couldn't be done. But imagine, among the mud and the mastodons, God sighing and yearning with tremendous creative yearning. In that dark green mess, Oh, for some other beauty, some other beauty that blossomed at last. Red geranium and mignonette. Uh, There's a lot more to discuss about 20th century poetry. Uh, There's another poem of T.S. Eliot that we're going to read and uh, Dylan Thomas and uh, Allen Ginsberg and many others. And they'll be on the next program, on the Spoken Word program, Uh, talking about 20th century poetry with Judith Rodriguez. So thank you for coming in, Judith, and I look forward to talking to you again next time. Good.